the Bodhisattva, Prince Siddhartha, was protected by his father from seeing the conditions of life. And throughout his youth and early adulthood, he lived a very regal existence in the three palaces and knew only of great pleasure in beauty. But the karmic momentum of his aspiration to become a Buddha was more powerful than his father's control of the situation. And the Bodhisattva felt this urge at one point to go outside of the palace to see what was beyond the familiar. And when he did, he saw four heavenly messengers. And the first was an old person, someone who was old and wrinkled and bent and who was in the later stages of his or her life. And uh, the prince had never seen an old person. And so he asked his charioteer, what's uh, going on there? What's happening? What's, what happened to this person? And the charioteer explained to him that this is an old person. It's someone who has lived a, a lot of years, and this is what happens to everyone. And even then, the Bodhisattva's perception was extraordinary, and he grokked it. He got it, what it means to grow old, and the fact that he too was going to grow old. The second heavenly messenger was a sick person, someone who was so weak and sick that they couldn't get out of their own way. And again, the Bodhisattva asked the charioteer, what, what happened to this person? And because he'd never seen someone who was sick, they were always hidden from him in the palaces. And the charioteer explained to him what it meant to get sick, what it was like, and again acknowledge that uh, everyone gets sick. And again, the Bodhisattva got it deeply, intuitively, personally, that he too would in time get sick. And the third heavenly messenger was that the Bodhisattva saw a corpse. He'd never seen a corpse before. And it was explained to him that this is what happens to everyone when they grow old enough or when they diseased or whatever, that they die. They no longer are there. They're no longer functioning. And again, the Bodhisattva got it. What it means for him, for each of us, and for him too, personally, to die. And this, so these, these, these visions, or these this knowledge, really, of old age, disease, and death so unnerved him and so agitated him in a way that he had to find a way to escape from this suffering. The fourth heavenly messenger, of course, was a, a mendicant monk, someone who had uh, given up the lay life and really was devoting uh, his life to um, realizing the end of suffering. And that was explained to the Bodhisattva too, and he saw that this was the path that he needed to take in order to come to some understanding and to get some relief from this inevitable suffering that he personally was going to experience. Left the palace, 
undertook the spiritual disciplines of that day and time, completed them, so to speak, and went on his own to undertake his own practice and realized some very deep understanding of the truth, the way things are, or the way it is for all beings in all times. After his realization, his awakening to Buddhahood, to this freedom from all suffering, he enjoyed the bliss of it, it said, for seven weeks. And then he considered whether to teach what he had seen to others. And his concern and the question for him was not, is this important, is this true, or whatever. It was, is there anybody that can understand it? And it wasn't because it was so exotic and so esoteric and so complicated and so complex that he was questioning. It was because it was so subtle that freedom from suffering is subtle. Okay. So he looked around the world and he was about to decide that no, he wasn't going to teach. He was just going to live out his life in bliss and freedom until he was prevailed upon by some heavenly beings who wanted to hear the Dharma. And then the Buddha relented and, and decided that he would teach. In the first discourse, the first talk, the first sharing of his realization, the Buddha spoke of the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are the foundation of the Buddha's understanding and they're uh, a part and parcel of every Buddhist tradition or sect in any Buddhist uh, country. Essentially, the Buddha taught one thing. Suffering and the end of suffering. One time when the Buddha was walking through the forest with some of his students, he reached down on the ground and he picked up a handful of leaves. And he said, which is greater? The number of leaves in the forest or the number of leaves in my hand? This is a no-brainer, right? <laughs> they, they were really wise. And they said, there's more leaves in the forest. And the Buddha said, that's right. What I know from my omniscient vision in this tremendously powerful mind that he had is like the leaves in the forest. What I have taught you is like the leaves in my hand. But what I've taught you is all you need to know in order to free yourself from suffering. Now we might ask ourselves, of all the books available to us in every spiritual tradition in our local bookstore or online <laughs> which ones are the leaves in the hand which ones contain the essential teaching guidance understanding to free our hearts from bondage and suffering Tonight I want to speak about the Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth has often been translated as life is suffering. 
What a way to get people interested. <laughs> In the Buddhist language, the first noble truth is dukkha satcha. The truth of dukkha. Not life is suffering. The truth of dukkha. So it's important that we understand what dukkha really means or what it refers to, right? Well, when I first started practice 20-some years ago, you know, the Four Noble Truths was, the first of the Four Noble Truths was presented, life is suffering. And I didn't get it. I said, life is suffering. My life isn't suffering. I'm not suffering. I'm pretty happy. Yeah, I'm, you know, I have knee pain and back pain and frustration and disappointment and competitive striving and I'm, you know, I have all that, but that's just my personal uh, limitation. You know, pretty soon when I get it together, I won't have those things. <laughs> well, I persisted in my denial for <laughs> 10 years until I got to Burma and Upandita teaches through a translator, and he uses a different, a variety of translators. And one of them used the term oppressive nature as a translation of the word dukkha, the oppressive nature of experience. Oh, when I heard that, it was like a light went off in my mind. Now I got it. Now I had a real sense of what dukkha was. And yes, I had some dukkha. Okay. What I saw, though, or what this showed me, is how powerful our conditioning of denial is. And how... it masks the truth. I personalized my suffering and through that personalization of my pain, my frustration, my disappointment, my striving, my competitive that time, I missed the whole point that this is a universal experience. It's not just mine. There's nothing wrong with me. It's not my fault that I experience pain and suffering and frustration and disappointment. This is the way it is universally. But that's hard to grok. That's hard to accept. And so we personalize it and in that we miss the universal nature of the truth. It shows us how hard, how difficult it is to open to this first truth. So what does dukkha mean? The first and the most obvious meaning or experience that dukkha refers to is pain. If you experience physical pain, knee pain, toothache, headache, body aches of any kind, that's dukkha. If you experience mental pain, loneliness, anxiety, frustration, disappointment, grief, despair, angst, wanting and not getting, mental pain. Pretty obvious. That's dukkha. In fact, it is so obvious, physical and mental pain, that it's called dukkha dukkha. Double dukkha. Just so you get it, right? Okay, that's pretty obvious. But dukkha has another, uh, refers to another experience also. And this is called viparinama dukkha. And this is the experience of insecurity that we all feel because conditions are unstable and they are subject to change at any moment. 
everything is constantly changing. Our bodies, our minds, everyone else's bodies and minds, the weather, the institutions of government, religion, the economic system, thoughts, beliefs, everything is constantly changing. What can we rely on for security, stability, uh, a sense of safety in our life? Whatever it is we do rely on can be pulled out from underneath us in an instant. Whether it's a natural disaster, the inevitable death of someone we rely on, the collapse of Wall Street, whatever it is that we're relying on, it is subject to change. And somewhere deep in our heart, we know that there is no security in this life. It's not possible. No matter what we construct, for security and safety and permanence and stability in our life. No matter what understandings we have with other people, with the government, with it, the bank or whatever, it's all subject to change in an instant. And we live with that insecurity. Mostly unconsciously because it is so terrifying to live with it consciously, with full awareness that this is what's going on. This fact of change and the resultant inevitable and universal insecurity is a tremendous burden to bear in life. And we all have to carry it. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't pleasant experiences in life. There is. We all enjoy a sense of safety, security, pleasure, dependability. We rely on people and we, we you know, we, we do. But it's all subject to change. So we can say that even though pleasurable, experiences aren't in and of themselves dukkha dukkha. It's not painful. Pleasure is pleasure. But it masks the dukkha due to change, due to the insecurity that we feel somewhere deep within us if we're aware, if we're conscious, if we're willing to face this truth in ourselves and in others. This is what we'll see. So we could say that dukkha is hidden in pleasurable and security-minded experiences. Now, a life of indulging in pleasant experiences might appear to be dukkha-free. You know, the dukkha-free zone? <laughs> you know? uh, but no, it's just a life of denial, avoidance, uh, masking, covering up of dukkha, an unwillingness really to see and to acknowledge this truth. Again, too often in our life and in our practice, we miss this truth. We miss the truth of this insecurity by personalizing it. We miss the universal nature because we personalize it. And we have this uh, feeling, oh, if only I could get it together. You know, if I just get it together, you know, and, and get a better job, a better relationship, a little more in my IRA or whatever it is, then I'll feel secure. <laughs> I'm sorry. Even that doesn't offer what our heart really yearns for. Peace. Absolute, unshakable, not dependent on conditions, peace. 
Okay, that's the second um, flavor of dukkha. That's the second experience in life that dukkha refers to, insecurity. The third experience of dukkha is called sankara dukkha. And this is a little subtle, so see if you can catch this. We're born, we go through the extraordinary difficulty and painful process of growing up, hopefully. And we hit the age of responsibility, whatever that is in your conditioning, 7, 8, 14, 15, 21, 45, whatever it is, and, and then you get to carry the ball for the rest of your life. You got this body, you got this mind, have fun. And we have to take care of it. We have to feed this body, we have to clean this body, we have to eliminate the, what we feed it, we have to groom it, we have to keep shifting our posture so it doesn't get too uncomfortable, we have to uh, entertain this mind with all kinds of stuff, we have to earn the money to do that, and where is it all going? You know, after 35, 45, 55, 85 years, where do we all end up? <laughs> this is a bad investment. <laughs> really. I mean, and you know what? We don't have any choice. We have to do it. Does that feel burdensome to you? Does that feel like a burden? It's like, who would ever choose to, to do this? <laughs> but here we are, and we've got it. This is Sankara Dukkha. Everything about our life is Sankara Dukkha. Everything. It's not all unpleasant. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it's all part of the burdensome responsibility of taking care of this mind and body. And there isn't anything we can do, or anything that we do do, to entertain the mind and to take care of the body that is going to prevent the inevitable. Now, lest we kind of fall into a tremendous despair and bleakness, which is possible when you get it, If all we're doing is carrying the burden of this body to the grave, we're surely going to be unhappy. So how do we use the energy of life wisely? How do we make any gold out of this heap of stuff? How do we get any benefit by practicing the Dharma, developing understanding, freeing ourselves from dukkha, and acting compassionately in the world to relieve others of theirs? for us. This experience of Sankara Dukkha is not obvious. It's very difficult to open to, even conceptually, intellectually. Experientially, it is very well protected from ever being seen by our mind. Because if we see it, if we see this Really, and if we, I mean, if we live, if we're living that truth, we are going to have to do something about it. You're going to have to do something about it. That was where the, the Bodhisattva was when he saw those three heavenly messengers. He had to do something about it.
Now, all beings experience dukkha. There's the dukkha of being a male. There's the dukkha of being a female. There's the dukkha of being old. There's the dukkha of being young. There's the dukkha of being wealthy. There's the dukkha of being poor. There's the dukkha of being uh, knowledgeable. Dukkha of being ignorant. There's a dukkha of being famous. There's a dukkha of being infamous, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> All beings experience dukkha. It isn't as if we can rearrange the conditions of our life and somehow escape it, avoid it. So dukkha has these meanings. Pain, suffering, oppression, vulnerability, insecurity, unsatisfactoriness of conditions. Now, I was born in a family and at a time when my mother said to me, and this was my conditioning, look, if you can't say anything nice, <laughs> don't say anything at all. Right? Do you think we talk about dukkha in our house? <laughs> I don't know. Those three. You know, I have to, I am so thankful, I am so appreciative of the Dharma teachers, my Dharma teachers, who brought Dukkha out of the closet and just said, take a look. Without that very compassionate pointing out, I'd be floating along willy-nilly happy in my ignorant, you know, ignorance of the way things are, thinking that, isn't this just wonderful? I am so appreciative of the teachers that just said, take a look, sit, notice what is really going on here. Because with even a little opening to the truth, to the universal nature of this truth, you have to do something about it. You cannot avoid it, deny it. You can't go back in the hole after you've opened up a little bit. Now it's painful. Dukkha's painful. I'm sorry. You know, and uh, a large part of a retreat like this is investigating Dukkha. It is said that Dukkha, the first noble truth, is to be investigated. And even with all of our effort, all of our intention, all of the support we have here to do it, 24 hours a day, it's still difficult to open to and acknowledge this is the way it is. We still struggle. We still try to patch together all kinds of beliefs and hopes and expectations and postures and whatever to avoid it to avoid opening to this, this experience. We'll do anything. We'll do everything, I should say. <laughs> and so, we just keep sitting. We just keep walking until we get it. You know what? <laughs> like they used to say, life is suffering. <laughs> 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 you know? Or really, you know, the truth of dukkha becomes obvious. Now, some say, why should I bother to look? By looking, I only make myself miserable. I only make myself unhappy. When I sit, then I create dukkha. Or when I look, then I make dukkha for myself. No. Sitting and looking doesn't create dukkha. It only exposes the dukkha that's already there. Like Jack says, Jack Cornfield says, self-knowledge is no good news. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we found out, you know, here we are, Dukaville. <laughs> now I'm going to ask you a simple question. Do you suffer? Second simple question, 
Do you care? Now, did you ever ask yourself, seriously, why do I suffer? Why am I so unhappy? Why am I not yet content with my life or with life? Have you asked yourself that? Why, with all that we have, my gosh, we live in the wealthiest time, the wealthiest country. We're all of an age, and, and uh, I mean, it's just like, and w- it, with what's available to us, if we can't be happy, nobody can be happy. Or maybe that's the problem. <laughs> but why, why, the Buddha too asked, you know, the Buddha too asked himself, what's the cause of this dukkha? And, of course, he had this tremendously powerful mind, omniscient vision and all. And he discovered that the cause of dukkha is craving, attachment, wanting, desire, longing, yearning, identification with, however you want to understand that. Now, we're not wanting, we're not desiring, we're not craving dukkha. But craving is the cause. In fact, most of us believe just the opposite. We think, if only I could get what I want, then I'd be happy. Right? If only I could get what I want, then I'd be happy. And the Buddha said, if you get what you want, you still won't be happy. Because the suffering or the dukkha is in the very wanting. Whether you get it or not is irrelevant. Well, it's pretty obvious. If you want something, if you're hankering after something, some experience, some knowledge, some person, something, and you can't get it, you can't have it, it's out of your reach for whatever reason, that is tremendous suffering. We've all felt that. We've all been reaching for that bell at 40 minutes, you know? (laughs) And we can't get it because we can't make that... (laughs) Somebody else has got the bell, (laughs) right? That's suffering, isn't it? (laughs) Okay. Now the Buddha said, even if you get what you want, that's also suffering. Now why is that? Imagine you get what you want. A new car, a better house, a bigger income, uh, a nicer partner, and whatever, whatever it is that you want. Then you have to protect it from either growing old or getting stolen or being depleted or being superseded. You know, if you finally win the gold medal at the Olympics or whatever and somebody comes along and you know, does better than you, and it's like, whatever it is, because things change, (laughs) there's no security. Whatever you get, even then, you have to go through the struggle to preserve it, protect it, defend it, insure it, replace it, and all of that is more dukkha. We're something like addicts, A-D-D-I-C-T-S, addicts. I mean, we're, we're like addicts also, <laughs> stuffing stuff in, you know, accumulating all kinds of useless stuff in the addicts. But we're like addicts, seeking another hit, another fix of whatever it is, satisfying that desire, that yearning, that craving. And the more we satisfy it, the more we need the more we want, the, the greater the hit to be satisfied. It gets more and more difficult to satisfy craving if we feed it. It doesn't get easier and easier. It gets more difficult. The Buddha said, craving is insatiable. You cannot satisfy it. Sure, temporarily, you, 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 you know, if you get what you want, there's a moment 
And it's very brief, if you really look, when you can be satisfied. Kamala and I had to get a new car about a year ago. Our other car just completely didn't make it. And so we got a new car. And you know, new car, hey, that's nice. Whew, secure, driving down the road, you know. Within two weeks, <laughs> honest, two weeks, somebody in the, dry, in the uh, parking lot, bang. There goes the passenger side door where Kamala usually gets in. <laughs> Unhappiness, right there. Couldn't be happy until it got fixed. More money, more of this. You know. it, and it, happen, it happens with everything. Okay. Joseph tells the story of um, getting what he wants. He usually wants chocolate. The better the chocolate, the better. Somebody came to the retreat center, brought him some European chocolate or some really exquisite chocolate, and gave it to him after his Dharma talk at 8.30 at night. (laughs) Couldn't resist. Had to have some. Kept him awake all night. Simple suffering from a simple desire. Right? Okay. So it's said that we crave pleasurable experience. Well, that's pretty obvious. But it's also said that we crave continued existence, and we crave the end of existence. Yeah, kind of perplexing. Eh? What the heck are they talking about? Okay, we crave continued existence. Hmm. Have you had planning mind today? You had any planning? You making making plans for the future? Mm-hmm. What is that? Making plans for the future is imagining ourselves in some other existence somewhere in the future. How we are going to become and be doing something else. Does that sound like continued existence? Craving for the continuity of this existence, enjoying more pleasurable things. Right? We don't have to. We don't have to get very esoteric about craving continued existence. And what's that mean? Just look at your experience. You're having a good sitting. You want it to last. You want to get everything you can out of that good sitting, right? Or maybe your corn on the cob. Oh, love that corn on the cob. Wow. Hey, how many can I eat before I start feeling dukkha? <laughs> Right? I mean, it's like... Okay, it's said that we crave um, the end of existence, or we crave... um, How do they put it? Non-existence. That we crave non-existence. Let's not get too esoteric. Let's look at our experience today. When today did you crave (laughs) non-existence? Like I said, at 40 minutes into that sitting, he said, I want that bell to ring. I don't want to be experiencing what I'm experiencing. Right? I want, I don't want it. I want to be annihilated until that bell rings. You don't have to, you don't have to get esoteric with this. It's, it's staring us in the face moment after moment after moment. Craving pleasurable experience, I hope I have a good sitting. Craving, craving continued existence, I hope my good sitting lasts. Craving the non-existence, I wish it would end. <laughs> and this is going... It's a good thing we can laugh. Remember that first noble truth. <laughs> it said that craving the second noble truth, is to be abandoned. The first noble truth, the truth of dukkha, is to be investigated. The second noble truth, the truth of craving as the cause of dukkha, is to be abandoned. But abandoning craving, relinquishing craving, letting go of craving, is not easy. Or, I should say, is not obvious. 
Now, if the Buddha had stopped there in his articulation of what he had discovered, uh, the truth of dukkha, you know, there's dukkha, and it's caused by craving, good luck. (laughs) We would be in one awful fix. Like, what are we going to do? Is there any relief? We don't know yet. The Buddha hasn't told us. Lucky for us, he continued, third noble truth. There is the end of suffering. There is the end of dukkha. Third noble truth. Cessation of dukkha is possible. Just knowing that, I mean intellectually, just hearing it, not even knowing it, well, there's at least a glimmer of hope. Now here's where the Buddhist teaching gets subtle. We've seen suffering, dukkha. We see that the cause of it, somewhere down the line, is craving. Now the Buddha said, the end of dukkha is possible. How is that? By abandoning craving. Okay. How do we abandon craving? What does that mean? Abandoning craving, it sounds so ominous, or sounds so impossible, or sounds like so simple. I mean, it's like, let's put it in actual experiential terms. We all were craving today different things. Hmm? Right. Did we abandon craving at any of those moments? Even for a moment? How do we abandon craving? You feel craving, you, you, and you want the bell, you want the sitting, you want the person, you want the corn, you want whatever it is you want. And there's this longing. And when craving is present in the mind, it causes us to focus on the pleasant aspect only. This is what craving does. It blinds us. When craving is in the mind, and whatever you look at, all you see is the pleasurable aspect of it. We don't see the unpleasant aspect of it because craving is present. And that's the function of craving, to blind us to all unpleasantness. Like I mentioned last night, you fall in love. That's craving, right? That's attachment. And when you have this first flush of love, do you see the faults or the imperfections in your beloved? (laughs) Thankfully, no. (laughs) Okay, craving. How do we abandon craving? The instruction is, when you feel desire, turn your attention to the feeling of desire itself, removing your attention from the object of your desire. Turn to feel desire itself. What does it feel like? When you pay attention to the feeling of desire, craving, wanting, longing, yearning, well, it's very unpleasant. It is excruciatingly unpleasant. The feeling of unfulfilled desire, longing, within the body, within the mind. It is unbelievably unpleasant. Which is why we don't really want to, we don't really want to feel it, know it. But when we do, when we turn our attention to it, and we're not acting it out, we're not stuffing it, and we're not acting it out, Right then, there is a moment of not craving. A simple but subtle moment of not craving. Every time we're mindful of the feeling of craving, craving itself does not exist. Mindfulness of craving uh, overcomes temporarily the craving itself. That's a moment right there, the end of craving. But it's so subtle, it's so fleeting, it's so insubstantial that it doesn't feel like the end of suffering until we build up some momentum. But even before we build up momentum, if you turn your attention to craving, that feeling of wanting, how long does it last? 
did, did, did you do that today? Something you wanted, find yourself craving, wanting something, turn your attention to craving, how long does it last? Did it last for five minutes? I'd be surprised. Did it last for a minute? Okay, if it doesn't last for five minutes, let's, 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 let's assume that it's really powerful craving. If it ends within five minutes, what is the experience when it ends? The end of craving. The end of dukkha. Right? If craving comes to an end, dukkha comes to an end. Right there. Subtle, isn't it? It's not knock you over the head, neon lights flashing, yippee, this is the end of suffering. (laughs) No, it's just, it is so subtle, we miss it. Now, all of us have had many, many, many moments of the end of suffering, the end of dukkha, the end of craving, today. Did we notice them? It's important to notice, to acknowledge, even short moments of ease, contentment, a feeling of relief, a feeling of uh, peace. Brief. They may be very brief, but they're important because through practice, those moments increase in frequency or increase in time. And in time, the subjective feeling is one of more relief, more spaciousness, less obsessing, less craving, less uh, unhappiness, less unsatisfactory uh, experience. Then we're getting, then we're getting close to what the Buddha is pointing to with this third noble truth: to realize the end of suffering, to realize the end of dukkha, see through the end of craving. Now, what happens when we see craving, we turn our attention to craving, we're feeling it, it's really excruciating, it leaves. There is this huge hole of emptiness open up inside of us. We haven't stuffed anything in there to satisfy that craving. Food or ideas or judgments or anything else, we've left it open. And so our sense of ourself disappears briefly. That's the end of suffering. There's no more building up of a sense of self through a relationship of craving to anything, anyone, any experience. And when all of that is abandoned, or when all of that is let go of, no craving, our sense of self goes with it. That's a really uncomfortable place to be. And so it takes some getting used to just, wow, what's what's this feeling here? Now, here's a tricky little understanding. The end of suffering can be reached there is no one who reaches it. You don't end suffering. You don't come to the end of suffering, but suffering comes to an end. Because in the end of suffering, there is no I. There is no self. And so you will never get to the end of suffering. But the end of suffering will be realized. This is how subtle the teaching is. It's not, it's not really way far out esoteric. It's very, very subtle. But it's experiential. You can taste it. You can get this taste. In fact, we get this taste often during the day. Little, little bits of, you know, you just uh, let go of struggling. Briefly, there's relief. That's a moment right there. Let go of, abandon, relinquish, renounce. 
whatever it is that you're hanging on to, there's that feeling of relief, that dropping out from yourself. Dropping out from suffering. Because it's unfamiliar, and because we don't even recognize that this is a moment of the end of suffering, we quickly fill it back up. We fill it up with other plans, other ideas, other desires, other wants, judgments, evaluations. This momentary cessation of craving, this momentary cessation of dukkha, is called Tadanga Naroda, temporary cessation of craving. It's not Nibbana, it's not enlightenment, it's not whatever, whatever, but it is akin to it. When one has purified their mind and no longer craves, anything, then we can say that experience is one of Nibbana. But we get little taste. Tadangas Naroda is like a little taste of what fully enlightened beings, how they live all the time. And we get a little taste. And in time, we lengthen that taste, we, we expand that taste to where we too feel that relief more of the time. The Buddha proclaimed that this relief, this end of suffering, is deep, hard to see, hard to understand. It is peaceful and sublime. It is beyond mere reasoning. It is subtle, but it is intelligible to the wise. I mentioned earlier, Santisukha, the happiness of peace when one has fully uprooted the tendency to cling, to hang on, to grasp from their mind, then we enjoy Santisukha, the happiness of peace. This is called the supramundane, the absolute, the unconditioned, the unborn, the unoriginated, the unmade, supreme silence, supreme happiness. Imagine if when I had come from Hawaii to come here, I had brought a tropical fruit that you had never tasted, never even heard of before. I don't know what it is. Maybe durian. You ever had durian? Most people never had durian. Never had durian? Okay. Good example. Uh, here's this tropical fruit. It, you know, it grows in a thing about this big. There's little pockets of... Uh, fleshy stuff surrounding a, uh, a little seed inside. Uh, it smells like whew. the nicest way you can talk about it is it smells something like a baby's diaper. <laughs> it tastes something like garlic and onions with a little bit of sweetness. Okay? It is exquisite. It is delicious. Do you know what it tastes like? No, you have no idea, right? You have no idea. You can't even imagine it. Well, that's what Nibbana is like. We hear about it. We, we have it described to us and pointed out and that and that and that. We don't know. We don't know what it's like until you have one taste. And if you have one taste, the taste is unmistakable. You don't mistake it then you know. And nobody can take that knowledge away from you. When you taste the unconditioned, nobody can turn your mind back to the lack of that knowledge. No matter how skillful they might speak or write or whatever it is, when you have that taste, you are on the path. This third noble truth, the realization of the cessation of dukkha, 
the cessation of craving, must be realized by each one of us personally. No one can do it for you. All the teachings, all the teachers, they're merely pointing the way. Each of us has to realize this for ourselves. And how do we do that? How do we realize the end of dukkha? The fourth noble truth is the path to the end of dukkha. Now the fourth noble truth is the noble eightfold path. That is a whole talk in itself, or a whole eight talks if you want. Uh, you could talk about the eightfold path forever. But briefly, the eightfold path is comprised of three trainings. The training of sila, which purifies your speech and behavior. It overcomes the grossest manifestations of the tormented mind. Living in this community here, living according to the precepts, guarding our speech and our behavior, we have overcome the grossest acting out that causes harm to ourselves and others of the torments in our mind. But we're still sitting with this obsessive tendencies raging in the mind. And so we need a second training that's more powerful than sila or ethical conduct. And that is the development of a tranquil mind, the calming of the mind through concentration. And we're doing that through using the primary object on the breath and uh, the uh, paying attention to the walking. Just in every moment that we can remember to just be present, we temporarily put aside the obsessive tendencies, the obsessive torments of the mind. When the momentum of that uh, continuity, that mindfulness builds up, then we really get a feeling of being free of the obsessive mind. And those periods in the day when you're at ease with yourself, you're just uh, uh, being kind of effortlessly aware if there ever is such a thing, and there is for periods of time, that's it. That's when the mind is free of obsessive torments. Because the mind is tranquil, the mind is pure, it's seeing things clearly. But conditions change. And those, when conditions change, those obsessive torments might arise again in the mind. So a third training is necessary to uproot those tendencies towards the tormenting obsessions, to uproot them from the mind, we need a third training, which is the training of insight or understanding, to purify our understanding of the way things are. When we do that, when we go through the training of insight, we uproot from the mind every tendency towards tormented obsession. It's a gradual uh, uprooting and a gradual eliminating of the torments, but it does happen. And then, as we move along that path of uprooting the torments, it doesn't matter whether conditions change or not. We do not resort to the tormented mind. Then we can say we're free of suffering. Not just from sila, not just from acting out, not just from tranquilizing the mind temporarily, but only from uprooting the very tendency from the mind do we overcome the potential to experience dukkha. This is the path, the Noble Eightfold Path of the Buddha's Fourth Noble Truth to be developed by each one of us. These Four Noble Truths, the essential foundation of all of the Buddha's teachings. The First Noble Truth of Dukkha, to be investigated. The Second Noble Truth of Craving as the cause of Dukkha, to be abandoned. The Third Noble Truth, the cessation of Dukkha, to be realized by the development of the Fourth Noble Truth, 
the Eightfold Path. So, let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.